Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go to get your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earthtobrit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's, B-R-I-T-T. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is a Yellow Wave production. member of the Haliwa Saponi Native American tribe, which was recognized by the state of North Carolina, Faith Hedgepeth was born on September 26, 1992 in Warren County. County? I'm going to go with county, which is also part of the tribe's traditional territory. Her parents divorced within a year after she was born, and so then she was raised by her mother with the help of an older sister, growing up in Hollister in Warrington. Connie Hedgepeth decided to name her third daughter Faith because she believed that was what she needed to raise a fourth child when she already had two sons and a daughter with a husband who had a drug problem. Girl, you don't even need to explain. Even with all the support, kids are straight up difficult. I do love that though. In high school, Hedgepeth was an honor student, a cheerleader, and a member of all sorts of extracurricular clubs and organizations. She did well enough academically to earn a Gates Millennium Scholarship to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her own father had attended UNCCH as well, but he had dropped out. She was hoping to be the first in her family to graduate from college. After completing her undergraduate classes, she was considering further courses to become either a pediatrician or a teacher. I'm getting the sense that she wanted to work with kids. (laughs) Her first two years at the university went well, and then she decided to take the spring of the 2012 semester off. She stayed in the Chapel Hill area over the summer, living in an off-campus apartment at the Hawthorne at the View Complex between Chapel Hill and Durham, on the line between Durham and Orange Counties, and this is during the month of August. Once her financial aid was available, she planned to move to another apartment. She shared this apartment with her friend since freshman year, Karina Rosario and Karina's boyfriend, Eric DeCoy Jones. The relationship between Eric and Karina had been less than ideal, and there were several issues with domestic violence. Several issues with domestic violence. Eventually, Karina ended it, and Eric moved out. However, he had tried to break into the apartment twice in early June of 2012, even after Karina changed the locks. So terrifying. Eventually, Faith drove Karina to court to get a protective order that required Eric to stay away from the apartment. Eric reportedly resented Faith's influence over his former girlfriend, and at one point during a phone conversation with Faith, 
He allegedly threatened to kill her if he couldn't get back together with Karina. So basically this guy, he sounds like a real solid, real solid guy. The kind you want around in your life. You can take what you want, but when you take it from me, I'll make sure that you fall upon the floor down to your knees. Let's talk about the night and morning that this happened. It was a Thursday. The date was September 6th, 2012. Faith had a sorority rush event that started at 545. She was really hoping to join the campus chapter of Alpha Pi Omega, a historically Native American sorority. She left at 715 from this event saying that she had to work on a paper she was writing about the history of her tribe. Faith and Karina then went to the university's Davis Library to study together at 8 o'clock. Between 8.30 and 9, she texted with her dad about her hopes to join the sorority. Faith then leaves Karina at the lib. You know, it's what the cool kids say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The library. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know because I'm not a kid anymore. So. <clears throat> so she leaves Karina at the library. And then she comes back around 11.30, basically just to pick Karina up before heading back to their apartment. This right here, as soon as I read it, I'm like, ooh, where did she go? Who did she meet up with? There was a reason for that, and I just want to know what it was. Even if it's benign and doesn't even mean anything, I want to know what happened. It's about midnight when they get home. Half an hour later, they leave again, heading for the Thrill, which was a now-closed Hold on. <laughs> I, ju I said that perfectly fine, but in my head, so many things went on. Let me start that over. So half hour later, after midnight, so about 1230, they leave the apartment again, heading for The Thrill, a now-closed nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill, which admitted customers under the legal drinking age of 21. Speaking of this, it brings me right back to EIU and the places, there were a couple of them that had the same rules. I never went to any because I always have, maybe always will, prefer a good house party to a club or bar. Sweats, you'd best believe it. Every time. But a lot of the times, actually now that I'm thinking about that, that I went out after college was after work with my waitressing fam and friends and those right there, those were the best nights. Unplanned, always, wearing sweats, but having seriously the most fun compared to the nights when we would like plan what to do and get dressed up and, and make stuff, try to make stuff happen. Take note, younger listeners, the less you try, the better it is. I can absolutely promise you this. <laughs> anyway, back to the reason we're here. Karina and Faith show up at the Thrill around 12.40 a.m. Okay, so another quick sidebar. Um, do you guys, anyone out there, remember the cliche of when you were younger and 12 o'clock in the morning was way too early to go out? And then you remember hearing adults or what you thought were adults say things like how crazy that is and th they can't even picture it. And here we are. 32 years old, raising my hand over here, and even me as a night owl. I can't imagine this, even though I know this was my life as well. I just cannot remember how my body, like, how was that a thing? It's so crazy. Okay, so after about an hour and a half of dancing, 
Karina told police later that she was having an upset stomach and wanted to leave. Security cameras at the club show her and Faith leaving at 2.06 a.m. This is the last visual record of her presence anywhere before the murder. Faith and Karina get back to their apartment by 3 a.m. And a woman who lived below those two and who happened to be awake watching TV said that she heard three thumping noises, which she described at the time as similar to a heavy bag being dropped or furniture being overturned pretty much not long after they got home. Faith's Facebook page was also accessed around the same time. A couple things come up scenario-wise, like two girls get home even though, now listen, this is strictly conjecture on my part. Nothing about this is talking about that. It's just my thoughts. So two girls get home from a club super late or early, however you want to look at it. And yeah, so they went to a place where they couldn't be served under 21, but that doesn't mean A, that they weren't served, or B, that they weren't drinking before, during, and after with whatever means. Trust me, when you want to do something like that in college, you can make it happen no matter what. Nobody can stop you. Um, I know on paper it looks like that's not possible. It is not only possible, it is more than possible and more than likely. But again, I don't know that. So um, I picture with that being the scenario, two drunk girls coming home those three thumping noises, if that were me, I would be like, wow, only three? I nailed it because I can just think of all the things. Shoes, stumbling, just everything's heavy. You drop everything. You don't you don't have that normal, your normal capacity to understand cause and effect, obviously. But it, it just doesn't surprise me. Or bumping into things and stuff falling over. I think of that too. And then I think you get home, you have access to this, like your internet now, because I don't know that at the time it was really common to have, well, I think it was common to have on your phone. I don't even know or remember, to be honest, but I could, I'm not surprised. Or say you get home and then you pull out your phone if she did have it on her phone. And uh, you guys, I didn't have time to do extra research this week, believe it or not. It's incredibly hard enough to do the research that is required for every episode, but I did not have extra time for extra, extra, extra. And I apologize for that, but that's why I'm not sure. So even with that being said, I could picture you get home and whether you had it on your phone or not, you're home now. So you have the time to look at it or you get onto a computer, whatever the means she signed into Facebook or whoever it was, because that makes sense. You get home from a night out, you go to Facebook. It's like that's there are rules and regulations and things you do as a college girl and they nailed it they nailed every single one of them um the other thing that I think about is them coming home and there being issues and whatnot but or somebody being there already giving them a struggle but again the only reason I I'm leaning more towards the first one is because of the timeline and what we're about to find out so it, they get home at 3, remember. So now here's 3.40 in the morning. There was a text sent from Faith's phone to uh, Brandon Edwards, who used to be her boyfriend. And the text says, Hey, B, can you come over here, please? Karina needs you more. Aha. You know, please let her know you care. Three minutes later, another text comes through from Faith's phone to Edwards with the single word, 
than, T-H-A-N, which is believed to be the correction. Like, so she sends a correction for the aha in the previous text. Like, instead of A-H-A, I meant T-H-A-N. I do that all the time because you can't help it when you're, tr- like, especially as it what I used to be an English major, you just want to make sure that what you're actually trying to say is portrayed. So that, I feel like that is a good assumption for police to make. Um, this is the last evidence of activity from her phone. So then at 4.16 a.m., quite a, not a ton bit later, but kind of a lot in a weird way. I guess that depends how you look at it. But Edwards sent a return text asking who had sent the previous text. As soon as I read that, the fact that he asked, who is this, tells me that the wording that was sent originally is so out of character for Faith that he knew to ask that even that early in the morning. Because say she used to drink or and that they were drunk, you would pick up on that and be like, okay, I'll ignore it or I'll just talk to you tomorrow. But the fact that it was so contrary to who she normally is or how she talks, it really, it, it concerns me. It's a red flag for me personally. There's a couple and this is one of them. So Karina's phone records so that she show. So really? Okay. I thought I was doing so well. Whatever. I am human. It's fine. Deep breaths. Starting that again. I get so excited, you guys, if you can't tell. So Karina's phone records show she also was trying to call Edwards around the same time. He didn't answer. And when he did not answer and like continuously, so she gave up. She tried to call Jordan McCrary, who was a UNCCH soccer player that she was familiar with. So at 425 in the morning, she left the apartment to get into Jordan's car, who obviously he answered. And at that time, Karina said later that she believed that Faith was asleep in her room. So she left the apartment's door unlocked. I have a lot of issues with this for several reasons. So I know that when you're drinking, especially time can really just misconstrue and it can just feel like so much longer or so much shorter. And there's not like that concrete feeling to it that's normally present when you're at your wit, when you have your wits about you. I just sounded like an 87 year old. (laughs) Um, when you're normally like your normal self, you even though time can still be like, oh, that was really fast or slow. It's different when you're drunk or have any impact of drugs, alcohol, anything like that, or a combo. You, it, it time can go so fast or so slow. It's it's a very strange thing, but it's it's very common when you're you've been drinking. So it weirds me out that. They're both trying to talk to Faith's ex-boyfriend, and he doesn't answer Karina, but he answers Faith's text with, who is this? Because it was so out of character. Red flag number 500. So then she calls this Jordan guy who comes right away. So then, remember, at 340 is when that text was sent from Faith's phone at 425 that's not that crazy long after at all 
And also, 416 is when uh, Brandon Edwards sends a text asking who sent this. So then take it. That's the middle text. So 340. Then there's 416. 425. She's gotten a hold of, Bran, uh, not Brandon, of Jordan. And Jordan's already there. That's when she leaves the apartment to get in his car. And she claims that this is not adding up. The more that I read this, I'm like, whoa, 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 sister, you know something or you're lying about something. Whether it has anything to do with the murder or not, that you know that this is not adding up. So she tells police that she believed at that time at 425, not long after, Faith is texting Brandon for her, apparently. And then she texts him as well at four, um, at four or six. Nope. Oh, yeah, around the same time that Faith is asleep. Like she says, she believed that she was asleep in her room. So then she leaves and leaves the apartment's door unlocked. First of all, do you recall that she had to change the locks because of her ex-boyfriend? Also, the whole leaving the apartment unlocked, whether your roommate and friend is sleeping or not, you don't do that. I don't care if you're drunk or not. This strikes me as very alarming. The biggest red flag. She, I get the, okay, so I, again, this is conjecture. This is where I could get in trouble, but that's, I'm, I'm just doing my podcast. I am not saying anything is fact. She, what I get, I pick up from this. My feeling is that she, whether it was planned or not, she knew what was going on. She wanted out of there ASAP. Like, because she could not be around for whatever was about to happen. And then she left the door, like, set it up or helped out. I don't like it. I do not like it. Not for a single second. So <laughs> I got a hold of my um, suspicions for now. They will be back around because I have a very strong feeling. And this is coming from someone who can just, believe it or not, I have learned this about myself. I piece things together way better than I thought I did in the past. Like I noticed shit that I knew I've always noticed things, but like, it's like I can see how the situation is happening before it's, it's so weird. But I also, yeah, I did get a hunt a killer box for Valentine's Day, six boxes. I finished my first one in 30 minutes. I'm not bragging at all because I was the reason it took so long. Well, this is going to sound like a brag. The reason it took so long is because I was like, there's no way it's this easy. But that's always been the way I am. I always see the bigger picture and I'm I, it's so hard to explain. But I have a feeling that I'm going to hold in right now a little bit. But I, I know that there is somebody involved without a doubt. Do I have evidence to back that up? Not yet. A couple things, but I I will not be able to put this one down, especially, especially considering it's a cold case. Cold cases and cases that are screaming, you got the wrong person, wrongful convictions. Oh my God, my heart. I can't take it. I can't take those cases. So I will hold everything aside for as long as possible and get through this. And then we can talk about that at the end or as close to the end as I can make it. So if you remember, Karina gets into 
Jordan McCrary's car. So then he takes her to the home of another friend of theirs who lives on West Longview Street in Chapel Hill. She says that she arrived there at around 4.30 a.m. So she spends the rest of the night and the early morning there. And then a little bit after 10.30, she starts to try to find somebody to give her a ride home. Okay, so here's a couple things. It seems that, let's see, 4.25, five minutes to get there. She could possibly walk, but I I, I don't blame her. You don't want to walk, especially considered the what we put in quotes the walk of shame you don't want to do that I also understand that I had a lot understand sorry that sounded very Chicago of me which I'm not I'm not ashamed of Chicago but it's I really don't like when I sound like I'm I don't like when people can say oh my god you're from Chicago I don't like that (laughs) I do not want my voice to sound any certain way I want it to be very neutral and that did not sound neutral at all um Again, though, it is what it is. I'm not trying to, whatever. I don't have time to argue this or explain it. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So technically, she could walk back, but I don't blame her for not wanting to. Also, I remember a hundred million nights in college, certain places that we would go that I'm not even going to start talking about because it will open up a whole f- floodgate of fun memories and people that I used to hang out with. And I just, I can't afford to get distracted right now because eyes on the prize, eyes on the prize. Um, I remember that though. It sounds crazy, but there were nights, there were many nights, not in a row, like because we were still in school, we got good grades, whatever. But there were so many nights where you would be there until almost noon the next day. Even later, if you went out for breakfast or brunch, basically it sounds like a an absolute marathon, like I said, even for a night owl like myself, pure hell at this point. But at the time, this was my jam. It really was. So I totally get this. So she says that she gets around 4.30 a.m., spends the rest of the night in the morning there. And then around 10.30, she's just trying to find a ride home. Again, how many times have I been in the same situation? Over 100. So after trying to call Faith, who apparently doesn't answer, duh, We know this now after the fact. She, Karina, calls another friend, Marisol Rangel, who came over and then drives her back to the apartment. So they get there shortly before 11, which makes sense because time-wise, if they left at 425 a.m. and then got there at 430, so it's like a five, six, seven at the most minute ride. That's not bad at all. And that's consistent with the night before. So that, that to me sounds legit. You have to understand if you think like this, like I do, you are, you don't even know you're doing it, but everything is calculating in the background. It's like those um, TV shows where somebody's like standing there or the silhouette and then there's all these computer like numbers going in the background and these calculating sounds. That's me all the time, believe it or not because I care about pretty much nothing, but I can't help but mysteries. I just, I'm, I'm drawn to them. So they get there a little bit before 11. I've probably said that 12 times by now. Bear with me. Oh, again, I said I wasn't, I'm working on that. I hate when I say that so much. Don't bear with me, then don't listen. I don't need you to listen. I've got plenty of listeners. 
this is me talking to myself, by the way, just chill out. This is me reminding myself, I don't need to tell somebody to bear with me. I'm not someone to be bared with. I'm someone to be enjoyed. My presence is enjoying. I'm just kidding. I actually just made that up on the fly. Um, I hope it is, but whatever. I don't have time to care about that, which is a blessing and a curse in and of itself. So they get there about 11. They, they, so they go into the apartment and they call out for Faith. Weird to me because I want to know, do they both do it? Because I'm pretty sure at this point, I'm going to leak a little bit of my suspicions that are pretty glaringly obvious at this point. Karina was the only one calling out. I don't, I, I've got, I've got it figured out. Anyway, I want to know, did they both call out or was it just Karina? Because it would not surprise me if it was just Karina and this poor other girl. What's her name again? Hold on. Marisol. If she was just like, oh, you, you, are you home? She's calling out for you. I'll call out for you too. Like, is this what we do? Like, she's probably thinking in her head, what the fuck? Is this what we do now? We just start calling out for our roommates? Because that's, think about it. That's so weird. When I would get home... I'm, I'm going to think of Sabrina, my first, well, not my first, but the one that I think of in this situation, like, Sabrina, are you here? I'm not going to say that. Fuck, I already know if she's there or not. I'm not going to call out for her. She's probably sleeping. And if she's not, I'm going to be sleeping real soon because I've been up all night. G- get you a roommate that you guys can mesh and not walk in and call out for each other or one that doesn't have an involvement in your murder because it's. I can't hold it back anymore. This girl, Karina Rosario, she knows something. If she's not responsible or a part of it, at the very least, she has information. She knows something and she looked the other way. Or even less than that, she just knows something or has a feeling, a very strong feeling. Either way, get get her answers, okay? She's Crack her and you're good to go. Um, so then they're like, oh, well, let's go look for her, which again, I'm, I'm wondering who led that search, <clears throat> Karina, <coughs> excuse me. They find her in her bedroom. She's bloodied and her body is wrapped in a quilt, partially nude. They immediately call 911 and let the police know. It's about the only thing you did right, Karina. Honestly, I need to stop because I'm going to feel so shitty if I was way off. But even if I am off, something's not right about her and her part in this situation. I'm telling you. So I am sorry if I am trying to throw her under the bus. I'm not. That's not my intention. But she does. She is involved in some way, shape or form, even if it's she knows something or thinks she knows something. Even if that's the littlest bit, that girl is key to finding the answers. I believe, in my opinion, in my opinion, I reiterate, in my opinion, conjecture, not fact. Details of the investigation were not discussed publicly at first, which was a deviation from the Chapel Hill Police's usual practice, which should tell you right off the bat, things are different with this one. Something's off. Something's wrong. There's something that is not okay that makes them want to do something different like this. 
the town obtained a court order sealing all records as they were collected. Police collected semen from the scene and used it to develop a DNA profile. It reportedly was consistent with male DNA found in other places in the apartment, and the autopsy determined that Faith had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Here's the kicker. That was likely a result of being hit by an empty rum bottle in the apartment, which they have a photograph of it, and it's that Bacardi rum, like, I can't remember if it's dragon fruit or... You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been like in college and drank that Bacardi rum and they had all these different flavors, as soon as I saw it, it just took me right back to college. And I was like, oh, I equally wanted to throw up because of drinking too much of it. And also the blood, there's dried blood on it. And it's just like, oh, man, so disturbing. So clearly, obviously, Jones Eric, uh, Karina's original boyfriend, the one that had this argument with Faith over the phone and also was known for domestic violence with Karina, he seemed without a doubt to be a very strong suspect from the beginning. Police learned of his history of this domestic violence and his and that threat, like I just said, against Faith. They also found that the night before this happened, around 6 p.m., he had texted a friend asking for forgiveness, in quotes, for what I am about to do. So then he goes on to his Twitter feed, posts the same thing. Three days after that, he changes the, okay, so three days after that, which would be two days after the murder, he changes the banner on his Facebook page, so like your Facebook, um, the background part to read, Dear Lord, forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. So many things I want to say right there that I, I, like, what a little shit. First of all, I don't have time to deal with someone like him at this moment. So we're going to move right along as much as I really want to dive deep into that and just rip that to shreds. Anyways, so then police sought a DNA sample from him. Obviously, that's their next step. Um, like we mentioned, they considered him a serious person of interest. After some initial resistance, he complied, which to me, I was like, hmm, that's strange. Um, I would have expected him not to comply at all. His DNA did not match the sample from the apartment, so they excluded him as a suspect. DNA from Edwards and many other men whom police found had been at the thrill during the same time as Karina and Faith. They were also tested with the same result, all negative. So within days of this, the university's board of trustees, the local Crime Stoppers chapter, the Halawasaponi tribe, and the apartment complex had offered a combined $29,000 in reward money for information leading to an arrest. Police hoped that that reward money would lead to a quick solving of this entire case because their resources were limited. In 2008, let me start that over. In the 2008 murder of Eve Carson, who at the time was UNCCH's undergraduate student body president, there was a $25,000 reward and that reward led to the killer's arrest. So clearly, I, I get that. They're like, it's more money. Let's make the best assumption that this is going to have the same result. 
Two months later, the office of Governor Bev Perdue added another $10,000 to the reward for Faith's killer. So now we're at $39,000. That's really impressive because it's coming from all over, which tells me a couple things. It tells me that she was really cared about and was viewed as a really, not important, but like, it was, it was monumental. She, something about her, which I'm guessing, I unfortunately, I never got to meet her. But you, it's clear from the first paragraph I read that I haven't even read you guys. This is just in my research stage that she was a special person. She was mature, bond, like a bond above and beyond. I just combine words all the time. Get used to it. I, I need to have like an, an index for the podcast listeners. When I say this, I mean this and blah, blah, blah. Usually it's a combination of two, like what I just said. Um. I feel like she was above and beyond mature and just a special person. I think we're all special. So that goes without saying, but there, there, I can feel it through my research. There was something about her that was so sweet and innocent and caring and loving and trusting. And here we are talking about her murder, which still has not been solved. Even with all of these factors, all the money that people have pulled together, it's just... It's really unfortunate and it, it just makes me so frustrated because the, the thing is, here's, here is the thing. <laughs> the answer is out there. It's out there. And when these cases are cold and they've become so not popular, but like talked about and discussed like I'm doing, like others before me did, others after me will do. We, we talk about them and we all bring our own spin on, not spin our own take on it. And we all bring what we have to offer to the story, whether we're even trying to or not, it's just natural. And it's still not solved. And it kills me because it's the answer is there. We just haven't seen we haven't figured it out. It's it's like haunted killer, to be honest. I'm, I know it sounds so crap, like crude to compare the two. And I'm not trying to compare them. But it's so true. It the answer is there. The answer exists. We just haven't found it yet. We haven't thought of it yet. We haven't put it in that sequence yet. We haven't moved a certain way, looked a certain way, and then bam, it just jumbled together. It's all about a shift. It's all about perspective, like looking at everything in so many different ways, but like that right moment when it just clicks and the answer, which is here, it's right in front of us, that moment when it just shines and just lights up it's it's bound to happen but when and the fact that it's there it's just it makes it all the more frustrating so now we're going to get into some information on the seal of these case records and then the criticism of the seal and a lot of he said she said but within that is also a whole lot of fact and a whole lot of perspective like what was happening at this time from points of view who were there and involved in all different levels like family friends other students who might not have even known her so before I get into that just take that into consideration and um yeah do what you will with this information so 
In November, oh, excuse me, that was strange. It's like a little alien baby coming up to say, what up? <laughs> excuse me. In November, the Daily Tar Heel, UNCCH's student newspaper, petitioned the judge who had ordered this investigation, the records of it, to be sealed. Um, okay, so they asked for the judge who ordered that to release an early search warrant in the case. Instead, the judge ordered it resealed for another 45 days. I do not like this. As I'm reading this, I barely glanced over it before I started recording. Not a fan. So they wanted the judge who had said to seal everything to, instead of doing that, prompt an early search warrant in the case. Like, search some shit. Well, okay, so it depends, though, because it's, what was the search warrant? What were the reasons? people's privacy I want to protect but if if you have good cause then that's different this is this is touchy okay so this is very touchy so again like I said the judge ordered it resealed for another 45 days so at that time the Chapel Hill police had not even released Faith's cause of death although her parents did tell the media that their daughter's death certificate said that she had been beaten which I'm not sure about the legalities here. I don't have time to ask my husband right now or research, but I'm going to guess that that was kind of a miscommunication thing. It doesn't feel like a malignant, like um, on purpose thing from the parents. It just feels like maybe they didn't fully understand and that her death certificate said this. Or you know what? Who knows? Let's play devil's advocate here, which I'm really good at, and say they were told not to say anything, but they found a loophole in mentioning what their daughter's death certificate said, because that's a totally, it's completely related, but totally different. You guys understand how this is so crazy. Crime, true crime, law. It is, there are so many loopholes. There are so many blind ends, like blind spots everywhere. It's, it's insane. It's totally insane. And it, every once in a while, a case like this comes up that just pushes the buttons on every issue. It's, it's wild. So in January, police announced that the DNA from the scene had come back as belonging to a male. Awesome. Pretty sure we could all, <laughs> I'm giving the police a hard time. I'm just trying to lighten the mood because like this is upsetting for myself as well. If you're feeling unnerved, join the club. Get behind me, sister. Um, yeah, we assumed that, but thank you for proving it. I mean, truly, thank you, because you really never know. Um, let's see. So from the crime scene and other evidence that the FBI had developed. Okay, so, okay, they take all this and ever, other evidence, other evidence, I'm getting way too excited, other evidence the FBI had collected. They develop a profile of the man. Which is always so interesting to me because it's like it seems so similar, but there are enough differences. It's like, oh, I just want to learn the science behind that for sure. Like officially, because I feel like I'm really good at it. But that's me reading crime books, true stories and whatnot. But it's not the same. I want to know the science behind it and, and like kind of dig it apart because I feel like if I can read these books or other people and figure something out or I feel like it's got to be intuition based as well. 
Anyone out there in the FBI or profiling, let me know if I'm even close. That much appreciated ahead of time. So they say that it's likely that this man had lived near Faith in the past, that he had expressed an interest in her, and that his behavior may have changed since the crime, which would include showing an unusual interest in the case. All of these things, like, duh, from my perspective. So, notwithstanding this release of information, the town successfully petitioned the court to keep the warrants under seal, saying that f- that this specific phase that we just talked about of the investigation was still not complete. So in May of 2013, the court extends the seal another, on top of the one before. So another 60 days on top of the 45-day seal they just did. So here we come to September of 2013, a year after the killing and... Chapel Hill Police formally request the assistance of the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, which previously had provided some help earlier on in the investigation. In quotes, we're working the case hard and we've used all the possible resources, says Chief Chris Blue. However, he would not share any more information about the case. So then, two months later, the Tar Heel notes that the uh, this part, by the way, is kind of like take what you want from it, but it's not, it's kind of just random, but I'm going to include it because it's within this research and I'm not, who am I to say it's not important or that it is. So you do what you want with it, but it didn't make sense to me. However, that was when I just skimmed it as I'm talking to you guys. So now that I'm reading it out loud, if we go off my history, it will probably make sense. Two months later, the Tar Heel notes that the um, Hedgepeth case remained open, along with the death case of David Shannon, who was a UNCCH freshman, and his body had been found on the grounds of a Carborough cement plant the previous October 27th. So he had died from a fall, and his autopsy showed that he was severely intoxicated, and so... From that, the Carborough police suspect hazing and believe there might be other students who could tell them more about the circumstances of Shannon's death, like people who were there, people who caused it, all that, whatever goes with hazing. While in Faith's case, there had been no new information about a possible suspect since January. Yet, okay, I get it. See, I knew I would. So the next sentence, yet the case records remained under court-ordered seal. So while you have on one hand the death of a student who was most likely hazed or not, doesn't matter, it's basically an accidental death because he was intoxicated and he fell over a railing. And it wasn't a murder death. It was a death, that, like an accidental death. He died, but it wasn't malicious. Or, I know, that's like a loose term because hazing is malicious. It was different because, in a sense, it was different because somebody physically did this to her where she had no option. Hazing, you have an option. Yeah, the lines are blurred, but you just please don't question me or push me too much on this. I really need to get through this. It's already late. I feel like I've made my point in enough of a way that we can all just be like, okay, yeah, we can split the hairs later because I can do that too. 
right along with you because same thing. I, I think it, it, it could be considered murder, but in a different way. So we have this accidental death. And then we have somebody who is physically beaten to death. And they are asking everyone around for the Shannon's death. Like, what happened? Maybe you saw something. But they're not doing that with faith. Why? It does. It makes you go, why? Like, and then you start questioning what happened in the investigation? Who messed up? Who are, who are we trying to cover? Who are we trying to correct? Stuff like that within the police. Again, alien baby, what is happening? Oh, ignore, ignore, ignore. I don't have time. I don't have, ignore, ignore. I don't have time. So things are about to get real interesting because there's a lot more shit I have to get through and I want to take so much more time on it. But guess what? This is where I hate it, but love it. I don't have the time. So now I'm put on the coals. Like basically I'm trying to think of something that I can handle talking about. Not a lobster that is inhumane. Um, I'm about to walk on some hot ass coals and boiling water, whatever you want, just whatever, whatever you can think of to make you realize I have to go, 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 go. And I'm going to want to stop, 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 stop. And I don't have that option. So this will for sure get interesting. <sighs> okay, I can do it. I can do this. So there's this woman named Chelsea Delaney. She's a reporter and she had covered the original, like the whole case right from the beginning. And then for the Tar Heel. So then she writes an article on the Atavist, A-T-A-V-I-S-T platform. Not sure what that is. I will check that out. Can't guarantee I'll get back to you though, to be honest. And she is skeptical. She's skeptical. Really, the harder I try, the like I said earlier, stop trying. Okay, take my own advice. I get it. She takes a skeptical look at the sealing of the case and speculates that the real purpose of the seal is to conceal early missteps by the Chapel Hill police from members who might not have been competent enough to handle the investigation by themselves. Understandable. The town's court filings, she notes, revealed that after the first two months of the investigation, no new search warrants had been sought. In quotes, we have to ask, how hot is it? And this is asked, this is a question quoted by one of the lawyers representing the media. So then Delaney, Chelsea, talks to the residents of the apartments at Hawthorne at the View who lived near Faith and Karina. They tell her that during the summer before when everything happened, they had big suspects about domestic violence that was later reported, as we've talked about a hundred million times, it feels like, between Karina and Eric. And they thought that police presence on the day the body was found was related to that. Like, basically, that whoever it was that was convicted of, um, the, uh, okay, domestic violence, that's the word. <laughs> I'm trying way too hard and I'm also just like so nervous because this this case has me wrapped. Um, they thought that Eric basically did something to somebody until they found out otherwise. Two of these neighbors told Chelsea that the police sealed off the four unit block where Faith and Karina lived with crime soup tape, but they only searched the women's apartment and no other unit 
adults in it. Like they didn't search anybody else or ask or anything like that. Guess what else they did not search? The woods behind the apartments. They returned later to search one other apartment in the complex, but they still did not canvas the area. They did not knock on doors, which knocking on doors, coming from an introvert, no thanks, goodbye. I will do literally anything else. I will do anything else. The worst shit you can think of, I will do it. I don't want to do that. However, I I will be the first one to say that studies show knocking on doors provides results. People pay attention more than they realize. And if you have the right person asking the right questions, which is where it's like hard for me, because as much as I wouldn't want to do it, I think I would be really good at it because I, I would know what to ask or I would know how to feed off of the person and what they're saying. Like, okay, so this is important to them. Let me relate it in this way and then ask them in a different way, the same question. And I guarantee you, I would get results. It's like, why, why do I, why am I not a detective? You tell me. Um, hold on, let me find my spot. Oh man, I just saw something I did not like. Fuck. Okay. They didn't ask residents knocking on doors, which I'm telling you scientifically has been proven like to be very effective. The police, guess what else they did with, with Faith's car? They left it unsecure while they searched the apartments. I'm sorry. Is that like everything I've just said? Step one of everything is everything they didn't do. Not okay with that. So when the State Bureau of Investigation officers began investigating the case in late 2013, they also interviewed residents of Hawthorne at The View. One resident who spoke to Delaney said it was clear to her that the SBI investigators were better trained than their Chapel Hill, Hill counterparts had been. So basically, they noticed from an untrained eye how differently they handled things and how much more sense what they did made, like it made more sense what they were doing than what the original police were doing. Um, the agent who interviewed her asked questions that elicited more useful information from her. Exactly. It's all about how you ask. It's all about the way you approach it. If you're putting off this vibe of I'm in a rush, I don't actually give a fuck. I just want to know yes or no, like not ideal. If, if you change it to wh- whoever is in front of you, the way they act, the things they do, the things they say, you're going to pick up on that. And you can relate those questions in a different way that has meaning to them that will ignite a memory in them that they didn't even know they had. As I'm saying this, I realize I would be really good at something like this. If there's anyone out there that can tell who can tell me what kind of job I would be like, all the jobs that require this kind of skill set, let me know because this is my jam. I do this all the time. All the time. Like at least 20 times a day at work. Okay, that aside, it's not about me. It's really not. I'm just, that made me excited because I felt like I could do that. Okay, so downtown Chapel Hill, Chelsea talks to the owner of a towing service who had the contract for the Thrills parking lot. He had personally set up a system of security cameras to monitor activity in the club's parking lot that might possibly have recorded anything that happened outside of the club, including Faith and Karina while they were there that morning or after they left. Can we just take a moment? 
a timeout and applaud this man or woman. Oh, they said he. So this man for being a goddamn genius and one of us. I want to say murderino, but I'm not my favorite murder. I'm not. I'm not affiliated. Not not officially. <laughs> but what is the other word? Like true crime fans, people who just think like us. It's a whole it's a whole species. I swear to God it is. We all look like humans, but deep inside you're either one of us or you're you're just not interested in murder or true crime or you just can't see how it's so fascinating. So all of those who can, can we take a moment of silence for this man? Because that is he is one of our kind and I love him. Um, here's the thing though. The cops, the police, they didn't ask to see it until not long after Chelsea's article comes out which is 19 months after the crime, then they're like, oh, shit, that's a great idea. Or, oh, shit, fuck, she outed us. Like, it's one of the two. It's either by innocence of not knowing because you're ignorant about it, which is not, I'm not saying anything bad. It's just, it is what it is. You either didn't know or you didn't care. Either way, it's not okay and we can do better. So, It's at that point that he says any footage that he had from that night that he created and got together for them, but they never asked, which makes you want to go, didn't you offer it to them? He probably did. Even if he didn't, that's not his job. Just aside from the point, he had this, it was there. That should have been something they were doing. I'm like, I'm doing the pee dance. My toddler his pee dance I'm doing it right now like figure it the fuck out it's not hard surveillance 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 look at all of it not just when they left or when they showed up look at everything look at every angle and get surrounding areas knocking on doors again business-wise knocking on doors and still as this is happening the records remain under seal And I understand stealing records because you can't give everything out. But like, dude, the first 48, here we are 19 months later, you have to stop. Like there is something going on there that is not, it's not kosher. It's not okay. And they're, they're hiding something, whether it's the severity of what they're hiding doesn't matter they weren't prepared or they messed up or both doesn't matter. Instead of keeping the records on seal, acknowledge that and move forward because you protecting yourself and being afraid of what people are going to think doesn't help anyone. It hurts everyone and it hurts you because if you would open up and acknowledge it and move on from it, how much more shit would you learn by doing what people are telling you, taking advice, knocking on doors, all of that? Figure it out it's a problem. It's a huge problem in police work. And again, I'm not judging, but it does need to be talked about because it's a huge issue. It is a huge reason why things aren't solved while there's while why there is interference, why there are delays. Stop trying to protect your vi- your view like Stop trying to protect 
what you look like to the world and start being vulnerable and willing to grow and you as police officers and as um, units and departments, God, the growth that would happen, it would be mind blowing and the crimes that would be solved and the interaction between victims and people in the area around you willing to work with you if you're showing that you're a fucking human being because guess what you are which is why there are these issues stop pretending to be so perfect you're not you're not at all we can all learn from each other and if we just like allowed ourselves to be seen as wow damn i really messed up okay the more you show that the more people are going to be like instead of coming after you like a lynch mob like get him kill him granted you're going to have those people always because they're they're just crazy and out of touch with reality but that's everywhere take those people with a grain of salt the more you show your human side and that you're trying to learn and that you want to do better the more people are going to want to work with you and will work with you and be more like if you're submissive they're going to be more um control not controlling they're going to be more open to showing you like okay well i'll i'll tell you i know this and be more dominant and then vice versa just if we could just work together a lot better or even try damn i i would love to see how many cold cases go lower how many of these wrongful convictions lessen how many crimes lessen i mean i think it would be a fascinating study just saying anyway i planned on not getting sidetracked yet here we are sidetracked as hell let me wrap this up as quick as i possibly can because this case is it just stole me it stole me and i'm I'm here to stay i'm a fan so let me wrap some stuff up i'll be right back the illinois state crime stoppers association is a broad-based crime fighting and crime prevention program whose mission is to develop and facilitate crime stoppers programs through the state of illinois in order to accomplish this mission, the Illinois State Crime Stoppers Association will strive to promote through marketing and awareness the concepts of Crime Stoppers by facilitating the partnership between the community, media, and law enforcement for the purpose of crime fighting and crime prevention, to promote the creation of local and scholastic Crime Stoppers programs throughout the state, to provide leadership through the use of an annual state conference continuing education, resources, statistics, and mentoring, as well as maintaining, improving, and expanding training programs to maintain a high level of program standards through a system of certification. To communicate through networking and publication and to provide representation at the local, state, national, and international levels. To secure and provide funding to meet state association goal. If you would like to give a tip, please call 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-TIPS. Okay, I'm going to fly through this and I really don't want to, but I'm doing it. So we can discuss this later in the comments or get a hold of me. So there's another reporter. His name is Tom Gasparelli. He covers the case extensively for his newspaper, which he's also devoted a lot of his blog to this evidence from this specific case and keeping it alive. So to him, Karina's call to 911 raises a lot of questions. 
In quotes, to me, the whole call reeks of unusual. And he writes that in a 2017 uh, report on the case's fifth anniversary. He raises the possibility that Karina's friend, Marisol, whose voice sounds to him more like the constantly sobbing caller, that she was the real caller, only later identifying herself as Karina after repeated requests from the dispatcher for her name. So like lying. And if it was Karina for real, she never mentions that Marisol comes with her to the apartment or that she's even there. The caller also does not mention Faith's name in a call that lasts nearly eight minutes, only describing the body she has come upon as her friend. So as her roommate, you're not going to say my friend. I mean, and not even say a name when they're asking who, whatever. So Gasparoli asks, why does the caller seem so reluctant to touch Faith's body when the dispatcher is pleading, like, like begging, please see if she's still breathing, see if there's a pulse. If Karina wasn't able to do it herself, if there was someone else there like Marisol, which there apparently was, according to later testimony, wouldn't you ask, like, I can't do it. Can you do it? Or, or if you're the other person in that one you're hearing talking on the phone with 911 is struggling. I know I wouldn't have even needed asked that. That would have been the first thing I would do when I walked in. I'm not saying I'm perfect by far. I'm just saying like it's natural instinct and I don't like that. I don't like any part of it. So then there's this note left at the scene. It says, I'm not stupid. Next line, bitch. Next line, jealous. It was sloppily written in ballpoint pen, and it was written on something that was determined to be the bottom part of a white paper bag that was commonly used for carryout food, and that bag was also used at a place called Time Out, which was a really common 24-hour restaurant in Chapel Hill that would have been the only place open at the time that Faith and Karina left the thrill. They used the same bags, like I said, and they're very close by. Investigators haven't said whether they have had the handwriting and analyzed. analyzed. Um, so this website, Crime Watch Daily, had an expert, Peggy Walla, look at these photos of the note. She said that it was, she noted that it was clean of the blood, reportedly found splattered all over the room, which clearly suggests that it was written either away from the crime scene or before the crime. The writer may have been using their non-dominant hand, so if you're left-handed, using your right hand, in an attempt to disguise their handwriting. She also believes that the writer was particularly agitated, annoyed, angry, likely to the point of homicidal rage by being called stupid. There's no emphasis on that, so I feel like that's like a reach where they have reason to believe that, which I unfortunately don't have time to go into. So there's a fifth anniversary post and Gasparelli said that a law enforcement source that he had talked to about the case refused to comment on whether the note was odd, even as this source answers other question, questions. Excuse me. So he elaborates that the words may have been intended to be read in a different order, which to me, that's the first thing I thought too, like producing wording that actually makes more sense. I'm not jealous, stupid bitch, for instance one of many that I thought of. Um, again, it's not about me. I gotta stop saying that, but it's true. You guys, I'm just like, I'm just your average Joe. And here I am like 
maybe it's meant, I don't know. I just, you got to think outside the box. You know what I mean? So then he also theorizes that more than one writer may have been involved or that not all of it was written at the same time. Again, same thing, because if you look at it, the word stupid, it looks like it was written separately from the other words. And it's it's because it's like really clear and it's off to the side. And then the swash ending leftward from the counter on the P and stupid, it really looks super distinctive. It looks super different, very precise and way separate from any other letter in the note, which to Gasparoli and to myself, I agree with you. And I also want to meet you because I feel like we are on the same page here. It suggests a a female writer or someone who's more calm and more intelligent than whoever wrote the rest of the letters on the note. So then he questions, what, what, what is the reason for leaving it there? Again, Gasper, somebody hire him because same fucking page, same page, same sentence, same letter. So if it was a message to Faith, it makes no sense to leave it next to her body because she's dead. If it was written by the killer or killers, it would have been super incriminating and the police had to have been aware of that possibility. So it almost looks to him, and again, I agree, like a red herring left for a reason to reflect the real feelings of the killer. Like, no, 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 I read that wrong. So it's left there to deflect from the real feelings of the killer. So it's left confused, which means... There's another reason. There's some other reason, which I'm picturing these three people, which in my mind is Marisol, um, the ex Jones, and then the roommate Karina, or possibly Edwards, although I doubt it. But like, if he was super smart, he would have responded the way he did earlier. If you go back, rewind and listen to that. They planned it. I don't know. Fuck. I just, I know Karina is involved. I'm telling you right now she is. Um, to distract them, maybe. They had reason in their own mind to be upset, but whatever. So guess what? There was part of a conversation that was accidentally recorded. So a friend of Faith's comes to the police with a long conversation that was, they say, inadvertently recorded. When Faith's phone butt dialed them, her, on the night before the murder, it was consisting of a three-way conversation. So it was three-way conversation, three minutes long, and it was what seems to be between Faith, a male, and a female with music in the background. The timestamp on it was 1.23 a.m. when the night's timeline has her, Faith, at the thrill. It was mostly audible and of pretty much not that like not of importance evidentiary wise until crime watch daily hired audio expert arlo west who specializes in enhancing such recordings he claimed he heard faith crying for help while the male says i think she's dying and the female says do it anyhow after a long discussion in which the female seems to get angrier God, you guys, I I wish I could prove to you that I didn't read this before, but it's not going to it's not going to be believable. 
And it's not proven, but it just goes to show the signs are all there. The male and female use the name Eric and Rosie, Rosie being Rosario's nickname, respectively. Faith's father is convinced that what was recorded was of his daughter's death. West, the expert on Crime Watch Daily, he agrees. Damn, I feel like I need a break just for that and I don't have time. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. So the website informed this website, West, whatever, informs the Chapel Hill police of his findings and they agreed to consider his enhanced version and evaluate it. However, due to the time of the message, they do not believe it to be a recording of the killing because of the music in the background, which further suggests that it was recorded at the thrill. Several months later, they added that the metadata associated with the call reinforces this belief. So Wes, the one who, re, like, not reevaluated, the one who evaluated this to begin with, he cites a known software issue with phones like Faith's that results in inaccurate timestamps. So he basically, because of that, discounts the background sound as being music since his analysis did not pr produce any sounds like percussion, a heavy bass, or synthesizers. You guys, I'm so... Uh, this is crazy. Further... He finds that there are none of the background sounds like glasses clinking, others talking, anything like that that would associate with a nightclub. It leaves you to question, right? Okay, so then on September 23rd, 2016, wow, like a couple days before my son was born. That is, this is wild. I had never even heard of this. Damn. Okay, so an episode of the ABC News program 2020 Chapel Hill Police, so on this show, Chapel Hill Police releases an image generated by Parabon Nanolabs, which is a genetic testing company in Reston, Virginia. And they release what the suspect who left the semen might look like based purely on the phenotype in his DNA profile. Science, am I right? Parabon's president tells ABC that Snapshot, the program his company used to create the image, predicts eye color hair color, skin color, freckling, face morphology, and ancestry. The image included a chart listing the probability that the suspect had the traits that he was assigned. So basically, be wary of snapshot. <laughs> so according to this image, the suspect was very strongly Native American and European mixed ancestry or Latino. Most of his genetic markers pointed to Mexican, Colombian, and Iberian ancestry, with some other South American and African countries making up the balance. Parabon believes that with over 80% confidence, they can say that the suspect would have a skin tone in the olive range with a very few freckles or none at all and black hair. It was unable to make any predictions as to his height and weight, which makes sense because that's epigenetics. So, I'm going to take a quick break, come back, and finish this up ASAP. Want to make a difference in someone's life? There are millions of ways you can do that, but this one is extra special. It's something I've always wanted to do, and recently I did the damn thing. I wrote to a prisoner. A prisoner who is desperate for a friendship outside the walls of prison. 
Write a Prisoner is an amazing program that allows you to search prisoners who are requesting letters from all over the world. You can do a basic search like age, maximum sentence length, even horoscope sign. Or you can do an advanced search, raising my hand over here, that's my jam, and get real specific. I chose all, which on the site is any, meaning no stipulations, but I felt pulled the most to an inmate on death row. You can search for as long or as little as you like. I searched for five and a half hours because I knew I would know as soon as I saw the one. Female, male, it didn't matter to me. The crime didn't matter. My search paid off because, as I suspected, I knew right away when I found my pen pal. I have zero doubts that this experience will impact my pal, but it'll probably impact me the most. I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> Curious? Head over to www.writeaprisoner.com and find your friend or friends because there is no limits to how many pen pals you write to, but it is highly suggested that you do not write to multiple prisoners at a single location. Go. Do it. For more information, go to www.writeaprisoner, that's W-R-I-T-E-A-P-R-I-S-O-N-E-R.com, and change a life. Now we move on to theories. While this is endless, and I can't, I just can't wait to dive in, I don't, I can't. I physically can't because I'm at the last minute. So I'm going to do my best to bring to you the bare bones, the basics. And hopefully this opens up a conversation for so many things more after this, but especially just specifics. So let me just get into it and then we can talk about that later. Chapel Hill police have not named any suspects or even persons of interest in this case, but they have stated that they do not believe that this killing was a mere crime of opportunity, which is pretty common, by a stranger. They believe that instead it was committed by someone in her social group, most likely someone who knew her through UNCCH. They are certain the killer or killers, I'm going to lean more towards killers, New Faith, and they've interviewed 2,000 people with DNA tests done on 750 of those, which in and of itself, to me, that's pretty impressive. They have mapped the relations of many of those interviewees with Faith and each other, a murder, murder board, basically, and have reportedly narrowed down to a pool of 1,000 possible suspects. Like, so they had 1,000. They bring it down to 10. So Chief Blue tells Gasparoli in 2016, listen, my boy Gasparoli, <laughs> this is not a cold case. It's never been a cold case. I don't know about that. But a year later, Gasparoli says that he believes that the killer was just outside Faith's closest friends and acquaintances. Good chance, this is a quote, good chance this person didn't know Faith or investigators would know who it was. They might, however, have been acting out of anger at some grievance she caused so to someone closer to her. Silence. Like, roommate, maybe? I have to do more research before I keep throwing her under the bus, but she just reeks of something. So, okay, moving on. Blue declines to answer 
his question at the time as to whether investigators believed that more than one person had been involved. In quotes, it's a piece of the puzzle we do not have if we connect the direct physical evidence. And that is from Salisa Lahu, who took over the case as the department's new chief investigator in 2016. So that's what she tells Gasparoli, who asked if there had been more than one person. So basically, I like her answer because it's very, it explains everything, but also very simply. I just, I like that. Basically, the evidence doesn't show that, but we're not ruling it out. Then she continues, there was some knowledge that two people lived there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did not know that. Oh, well, I mean, it's not surprising, but I, we didn't know that. Um. Okay. There's been speculation that sometimes focuses on Rosario, like my own, by the way, uh, Faith's roommate, due to her 911 call, the last texts, um, the whole Rosie on the voicemail conversation and her decision to leave the apartment unlocked, claiming that Faith was asleep. Yeah, same. Same. So apparently Karina has left North Carolina and has said very little about the case since then. And so Gasparelli wrote in 2017 that he learned from his police sources that they still regularly talk to her and she cooperates. To me, I don't care. That doesn't mean shit. They, however, they believe that there is more. Oh God, I read that wrong. I was going to say that they believed that there's nothing more that Karina can tell them. That's not accurate. So Gasparoli writes again in 2017, like I said, so he learns from his police contacts that they still regularly talk to her and she cooperates, but they also believe that there is more Rosario can tell them. His quote is, it sounds to me like Rosario has been in the crosshairs as a key figure who knows more than she says she knows. And that's the end of that. And I could not agree more. As much as I want to dive so deep into this, I, f I just simply can't. However, there's more time. Uh, so we'll have to continue this another day. But until then, I hope you enjoyed this. And by that, you know what I mean. I hope that this made you think and I hope it caught your attention. And I hope your brain is spinning and that you're like, whoa, 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 what, what, what? And trying to figure it out just like me, like everyone else listening. That's what we do in tr true crime, especially cold cases. I love you all. I'll see you next week. Bye. Peace out. Everybody talk, but they got nothing to say. Everybody drink, but their problems here to stay. Let it all go. This is a Yellow Wave production.